Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. 2 Samuel chapter 16 is where we'll pick up tonight. Uh, little context on this, because when David was a little past the top of the mountain, doesn't needs little context. Absalom's just moved into Jerusalem, and Absalom is not David's, he's his son, but he's not, he's overthrowing David's kingship. Uh, David basically quits his job, you know, he's the head of the kingdom, and he says, I'm kind of done, I'm going to quit, uh, because he doesn't want the conflict with his own son. So instead of having a civil war, he packs up his family, and he heads out. Uh, they are, when we do this, chapter 15, 16, this is the most text committed to a single day in world history other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, this is the day that gets the most detail in the entire Old Testament, which would make you think, what does God want us to see about this particular day? And this particular day happens to be about David quitting the kingship and leaving his job and leaving his security. Uh, and when you get to the New Testament, of course, you get the accounts of Jesus and you get that whole uh, passion sequence, which is detailed with a lot of detail. Uh, so we have, as we've been going, we get who is loyal to David and who's not loyal to David. About 300 of the nation's leaders betray David and side with Absalom. And then in chapter 14, verse 15, the servants of David's household stay loyal. The personal guard, the Cherethites and the Perethites, stay loyal to David. And then in chapter 17, the Gittites, this newbie group that just showed up, they stay loyal to David. And then in verse 24, the priests stay loyal to David, but David sends them back. And then in verse 31, Ahithophel, really close advisor to David, close friend to David, um, actually betrays David, which had to hurt a lot like Judas betrayed Jesus. And then you got Hushai, an old timer that tries to stay with Jesus, but can't quite keep up. He's slow to arrive to the party, a lot like Peter was. And he is loyal to David or loyal to David and actually saves David's life and is the one that kind of builds David's side of the rebellion. So a fairly balanced civil war. David gets the crack troops or the elite troops. Absalom gets all kind of the, the mob troops that you kind of recruit when you go to war. Um, advisors are split between them. It looks like Absalom has this advantage, but through the whole thing, God's kind of taking care of David too. So we see in this very detailed day how people respond to the king. And the king in this account is always David, King David, or that the God-anointed king is King David, but there's other people that are puffing themselves up as a king too, but they're not the king. So how do people respond to the king? Who are they loyal to? Who are they not loyal to? And there's tons of connections between this and Jesus as he goes to the cross. And, and we'll point out a couple of those tonight. So when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them, 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. 
the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. There was a belief that wine renewed your spirits. And then the king said, Where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I might find favor in your sight, O Lord my king. Now, as we, um, I'm going to scooch up here so I can see everybody. As we get going on this, like you've had this train of people, some of which are loyal to David, some of which are not. When you read the first four verses of this chapter, it sounds like Ziba's with David, right? Like this is a loyal person to David. There's only a couple problems with that, and that is that he's lying through his teeth. So there are people that say they're loyal to the king, with their mouth, but with their actions and their heart, they have very different intentions and they have very different goals. This, I think, is part of the detail that we tune into as believers when we read the word. Let's sort that out. Mephibosheth, we know from chapter 9, David, he was the son of Saul, the last remaining one, and David elevated him, gave him his household back, and gave him 30 servants, of which Ziba was one of those servants. We know of Mephibosheth that he couldn't walk, because his nursemaid dropped him when he was a baby, so his legs stopped working. So he was lame, he couldn't move. So as David starts moving out of Jerusalem, remember he was having dinner with Mephibosheth every night. He couldn't follow David because he couldn't walk. So Ziba steps in, takes everything he can, and basically steals from Mephibosheth and offers everything up to David. So it says he's staying in Jerusalem. Literally in the Hebrew, that means he's seated in Jerusalem. What Ziba's saying about a, a, um, Mephibosheth is that he is seated or he's taken a seat in the new Absalom kingship. He's basically saying, Mephibosheth has betrayed you. So this feels a lot like Ahithophel betraying David, but it's slightly different in that we'll find out later it's not true. Verse 3, Israel will restore the kingdom of my father. And that, so what Ziba's saying is, Mephibosheth not only is betraying you, David, but he's trying to restore the household of Saul. So there's still these people that don't want David's household to win. So Ziba's getting out of there. And this gives us some hint as to what Ziba's trying to do here. If Absalom's coming in and David blessed Ziba and Mephibosheth, maybe Ziba's thinking to himself, because remember Ziba's the one that raised his hand and, and pointed out where Mephibosheth was staying. So kind of betraying him in the first place. Well, he's betraying him again now. That character didn't leave Ziba. But the first time he did this, David elevated him to the head of a household. So he's thinking probably if David's taken off and Absalom's coming in, odds are that Absalom's going to end Saul's family because that's what kings did back then. And Absalom's a much more kind of godless king. And he's probably right in thinking that, but then he takes advantage of the situation and instead of helping Mephibosheth, say that three times fast, instead of trying to help him, he actually takes off because he can't keep up. And he takes his stuff with him and gives it to David like an offering. And David kind of quickly responds to him here. So in verse 4, it looks like Ziba's being really generous. I think it's really easy to be generous with other people's money, right? It's not his stuff to give away in the first place. So then he gives the reason that I might find favor. So maybe he's hoping that David will promote him within David's household um, as he's leaving, and Mephibosheth just is left to die under Absalom. This is pretty nasty stuff. 
So it's all revealed in chapter 19. We'll get there soon. But this is an elaborate lie. Basically, Ziba left Mephibosheth in the dust, and Mephibosheth was left to, uh, instead of having allies to help him out, he was left to try to survive on his own. Not knowing any better, David takes his word for it, and Ziba successfully uses this catastrophe for his own gain and, and opportunity. Like Rahm Emanuel saying, never let a, a crisis go to waste. Ziba's an opportunist, and he sees this as an opportunity to make his move. And then verse 4, so the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. This ploy actually works. So for a short time, Ziba just won the lottery. And Ziba says, I humbly bow. This is false humility. He's lying to David. When you lie to people, that's not an act of humility. It's an act of arrogance. So he lies to David, and then he fakes humility, and he steals everything and leaves Mephibosheth, basically throws him under the bus. Devious people leave, throw people under the bus. It just happens. Heck, even godly people throw each other under the bus sometimes. But Ziba's pretty intentional about what he's doing here. Then, then you get another nasty situation, Shimei. Verse 5, now when King David came to Brahurim, this is leaving Jerusalem. This is still in the tribe of Benjamin's territory, but it gives us a direction. David's heading towards Jericho. So on a map, that's just the path that he's taking. In other words, David's heading right back to the territory that he lived in the wilderness back in the day. He's heading back to that area that he knows very well. There was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, or Shimei, Shimei the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out, cursing continuously as he came. So this guy comes out and starts swearing at him, like, eek, you know? And anyone that goes out to do any sort of ambassadoring for the king and doing some witnessing. Now and then you have people that like to swear and yell and get angry at you. So he comes out and he starts yelling. And then there's this really interesting passage. So this is a guy who sides with Saul. He's part of the, he's not a biological immediate family of Saul, but when it says family of the house of Saul, it means he's a Benjaminite. And he still, you know, believes that Saul's the rightful king. So he makes a disservice, Really, he takes advantage of this opportunity to curse King David because King David's at his low. So when King David's in power, this guy keeps his mouth shut. But when he seems to be beaten, this guy just jumps on the bandwagon and takes advantage of it. But it gets more than just swearing at him. Verse 6, and he threw stones at David. Now it's escalating, right? And, it, and, and at all the servants of King David and at all the people and all the mighty men who are on his right hand and left. Think about when it says the mighty men. Think about who this idiot is throwing rocks at, right? These are some of the best warriors in the land. They've beaten everybody around them. These are veteran, tried-and-true soldiers, and this guy's throwing stones at them. Also, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. And the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Is this happening to David because the Lord is in it? Yeah. Is it because David's a bloodthirsty guy? No, that's a false accusation. It's because he killed Uriah and he, he's a lustful guy, but bloodthirst isn't exactly his sin. So you would think it would be about all the wives and all the things that David actually did. But again, when evil goes after a good person, they don't care what they're going after the person with. The goal isn't just to get David out of the kingship. The goal is to utterly destroy the king. 
And that means a spiritual destruction. And this is how evil works. Evil's not just happy with a win. They want utter destruction and devastation to follow in their wake. And this is where, this is one of those things where people that are called into the political world, they realize that those things can happen really quickly, right? So he perceives he can get away with it, so he does. And then verse 8, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. Actually, David was really graceful with Saul's house. I mean, that was the story we just got done with, with Ziba, kind of a reminder. David wasn't bloodthirsty with Saul's house. The only part of Saul's house that David had the opportunity to kill, he gave grace to. And when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he didn't and showed grace to David. The truth is David's been graceful with Saul's family at every step of the path. So it's an utterly false accusation. Saul wrecked his own house. David didn't have anything to do with it. The leaders of Israel asked David to be king. He didn't kill anybody in Saul's family to become king. He was brought to that position. So it's funny that the enemy attacks David in an area of one of his greatest spiritual strengths. It was one of David's strengths that he showed so much grace. And that's the area that the enemy wants to go after. He doesn't go after your weak spots. He goes after the things you think or that God has blessed you with as a strong spot. It's amazing how God does that. And he's still doing it today. The very things God's blessed us with in the kingdom are the things that Satan likes to attack. The enemy loves to heckle, discourage, bring people low, especially when we're feeling low. That's when the enemy piles on. Verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, this is Joab's brother, right? Why should this dead dog curse my lord to the king? Please let me go over there and take off his head. Like, David, can I go kill this guy? Like, we're sick of him. But the king said, what have I to do with you? Literally, what is this your business? Like, this isn't about you. And I'd be like, well, he's throwing stones at me too, David. You sons of Zeruiah, so let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? It's an odd little thing that David's doing there. Let's just let him curse. We'll take that abuse because David knows he's sinned against God. David knows that the sword in his household was promised by God. And who's David to determine what that looks like? So this guy feels the need to come out and yell at us and curse us. David's like, let's just do it. Let's just let that happen. David's restraint here, frankly, and I think this is interesting, the accuser's calling him bloodthirsty, and he's got expert soldiers saying, let's go take this guy out. With a word, David could end this guy's life. And the fact that David doesn't do that is actually the very thing that proves the accuser wrong. That instead of being bloodthirsty, he shows mercy and grace when it's not deserved. Because this guy should, like, it would, takes a pretty graceful person to just let this guy keep doing it when you could end him that quick. But there's, you know, there's just this idea. Psalm 14, 143, verse 3, For the enemies persecuted my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me dwell in dark, darkness like those who've been long dead. There's a tone here from David like, I had this coming. And between me and God, I need to hear this. It's okay for me to be humbled. And if God sent this guy to curse me, then... I need to just hear what this guy's saying. I need to realize not only am I not king, I'm actually despised for my sin, and I'm just going to hear that. It's interesting that David knows he's sin, but at the same time, he knows God is good, and that's what helps him to endure persecution. Maybe I got the persecution coming. I have no doubt about God's being good, 
Therefore, I know that God will dis discipline his children as much as the enemy will attack me. But if the enemy attacks me, he also knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is his shelter and his salvation. Either God will save him or God won't. And that's not up to David. So he's still modeling this endurance to his men, this grace in the face of hate. And again, we saw David refresh himself last week. His first act of being back on his game is to endure the worst. This persecution, this hatred, his son coming to try to kill him. And in that, he starts acting like a king again. Maybe the kingship wasn't good for David. Maybe it got to his head and he was a little too big for his britches. The pride started to kick in. This is helping him get rid of that pride. God's just doing surgery on his heart. I can't have you in the kingship for a while because you have to learn humility, right? And he, was, he got promoted pretty quick. And as he's walking away from the kingship, here we go. Being reviled, we bless, 1 Corinthians 4.12. Being persecuted, we endure. And David's just showing what that looks like. This willing acceptance of persecution mirrors what Jesus took before he went to the cross. The scorn, the mockery, the beating. And Jesus mercifully accepts that. And David said to Abishai, verse 11, and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite? Let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. Again, a lot of the same things. If, if Absalom's trying to kill me, this guy's just throwing stones and kicking dirt. You know, the bigger problem is Absalom. I got a son who wants me dead. This guy just doesn't like me. May it be that the Lord will look upon my affliction. Again, just, just think of the beauty of this. May it be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went west along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went. <laughs> and he threw stones at him and he kicked up dust. You ever been walking through dusty terrain? and you're not in the head of the thing and the dust gets kicked up, this guy's purposefully kicking up the dust so the soldiers got to breathe it as they walk. And now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Like, isn't that an odd end to that whole story? They're going through this process, but something in them gets refreshed, renewed. If this is as worse as it gets, we can handle this. Right? So note that as he's cursing, it keeps getting bolder. He's yelling at them. He's cursing them. Then he throws stones. Now he's kicking dust. Again, when the enemy sees a godly man down, they just stomp even harder. Let him alone. David endures it. And I love this idea. In verse 12, it says, it may be, which is literally in the English, like perhaps or maybe. Think of the submission. There's no presumption from David here. He's not presuming that God's going to put him back in the kingship. He doesn't, he doesn't have the book we have in front of him. For all David knows, he's done with the kingship forever. He just left his retirement fund forever. And he's going off into the unknown, but there's no entitlement with David. He doesn't assume anything of God. If, maybe, if God sees this persecution, he'll bless me and, and he'll treat us well. Maybe. But with that maybe goes, maybe not. And David's willing to accept whatever God has for him because he loves God more than his own life. I'll take God over any of that. So there's this unwavering faith. And part of this, we've already seen David get refreshed once, but then at the end of 14, they refresh themselves there with a guy yelling and screaming at him. You know, if, the, if Satan throws his worst at you 
and you st you're still breathing at the other end? That's the worst you got, Satan. Like, like, let's rock this for Jesus. Like, we're good to go. So they refreshed themselves there. He quit his job. There's rebellion. There's betrayal. There's this angry old man <laughs> cursing at him. And in the middle of all that, he finds this peace, this serenity. I love this. I love hearing stories from Christians that have gone through persecution, and a lot of them describe this supernatural peace that comes over them. It's like Paul, Peter going to sleep in a jail cell. It's like Paul and Silas being in jail singing worship songs together, right? And this is the worst the world has, and we can still worship the Lord. What's, what's the world got on the kingdom of God? Nothing. So he doesn't run. He isn't panicked. This refreshment implies that they stopped and relaxed a little bit which they're going to get some advice to not do that anymore, get themselves out of there because Absalom's coming. But it also, you know, Isaiah 52, 12, you will not leave in a hurry running for your lives for the Lord will go, will go ahead of you. The God of Israel will protect you from the behind. Right? One of the promises of God is we don't have to be worried about what the world's going to do to us. And David's leaving Jerusalem, but he's leaving in such a way that he knows God's got his back. And the Psalms he's writing, somehow he finds times to write Psalms. But David, like a godly king, refuses to cling to pride. He doesn't cling to the throne. He doesn't cling to power or money or strong walls. But he humbles himself and reminds himself of God's will. And he clings to God and allows the persecution to come as it may. And in doing that, he's gaining the respect step by step of his soldiers saying, who are we following that can put up with this and endure it? David's bigger than the curses. Because if he just took Shimei's head off, then he's just as bad as Shimei says he is. I just love what he's doing here. Psalm 25:20. get inside David's head a little bit. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced, for in you I take refuge. So he's just praying as the curses are coming. Lord, protect me. It's in you I take my refuge. He's breathing the dust that this guy's kicking up. Feels a few stones hit his face. I'm with you, Lord. When we cling to the things of this world, we cling to the very things that are going to drain us and kill us. And that's the truth. When we cling to the Lord, we cling to the only thing that can save us. So we think we make decisions, but we make them considering all the variables. There's only one variable. What brings you closer to the Lord God Almighty? And maybe that's walking down this path, this journey. I'm broke, I'm hopeless. And then people turn to gambling right? It's the very thing that's going to destroy them, right? Or I'm so lonely, and then they turn to, to pornography, the very thing that's going to make them more lonely, right? I'm so tired, I should really get to work more. And you're like, okay, you're exhausted, and then you're turning there. It's the very thing that's going to suck your life out of you. And in sin and in the flesh, we do that all the time, right? I have no control over my life, so I'm going to try to get more control over my life. And we cling to the very things that destroy us. David's doing the exact opposite. He clings to God because that's the only thing that'll save him. He doesn't orchestrate how to get food for all these people, but the food just shows up in the last chapter. It's going to show up again in the next chapter. He doesn't do that. He, you'd think he would cling to provision. We have to get food for everybody, but the food just shows up. You'd think he would, he would cling to protection and have his soldiers kill Shimei, but he just clings to the Lord God Almighty and, and is writing the Psalms as he walks. So as the longest recorded day in history, this is, there's an absolutely a ton of elements here that God wants us to see about how we walk, how our journey in Christ is to be walked and carried out. 
and sometimes we endure persecution, try to endure persecution with peace. David stops on the Mount of Olives to worship. David has loyal friends. He has enemies. <clears throat> some of the priests come with him. Some of them stay back. The king is going to leave for a while, and we don't know when he's going to return. Lots of connections to Jesus and the narrative of Jesus Christ. He willingly accepts the punishment for his sins with Shimei. He, he openly takes the abuse and the scorn without fighting against it because he's going to take those sins. With David, it's he's taking his own sins upon himself. With Jesus, he's taking our sins upon himself. Verse 15. Meanwhile, I like how the Bible just switches scenes like a movie. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. They march into town expecting a fight, but there's nobody there to fight them. So they move into the palace and have a meeting, and Ahithophel is with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Live long, long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So given Hushai's puma-like speed, <laughs> this is all in one day, right? He tried to catch up to David, and David said, You're just going to slow me down. So then he plods himself back to Jerusalem shows up after they've invaded the city, and long live the king. Like, this had to be a really funny old man. Like, I kind of want to get to know Hushai. So when everybody else is lined up to talk to Peter, when we get to heaven, I want to go talk to Hushai, because I think he's awesome. He's also a really shrewd codger. Listen carefully, verse 18. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all of the men of Israel chose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I've served in your father's house, so I will be in your presence. Sounds like commitment to Absalom, but if you read it really carefully, he's vague in every key point. He uses the right words. So David in chapter 15 asked Hushai to go back to the court and, and try to counter the great advice of Ahithophel, the wise Ahithophel, right? Try to do that. So Hushai really demonstrates why he was so valuable to David here. Like, think of the shrewdness. We're talking about a politician today, and it's like, well, should Christian politicians go here and there? So you're looking at this idea of Hushai follows the true king, but he's been called to service back with the enemy. And sometimes God's people are called to serve in places where they're surrounded by the enemy. But God, I think, calls wise people that are very careful with their words to serve in those kinds of roles. It does take a special kind of wisdom to do this. So in everything he says here, starting with long live the king, that's anonymous. We don't know who he's talking about. Is that Absalom the king or David the king? He does, nothing comes out of his mouth that's a lie. Look really carefully at what he said. Whom the Lord has, you know, who the, whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel chose. Well, the men of Israel chose Absalom, just like they chose David, but the Lord chose David to be the king. The Lord hasn't anointed Absalom to this job. So what comes out of his mouth, he's trusting that Absalom is so filled with pride that what Absalom hears is loyalty to him because he's sitting on a throne made by humans. But what Hushai is saying is that he's proclaiming his loyalty to the king that the Lord anointed, which is David right to Absalom's face. This is so amazing. Absalom then assumes that this is all about him. And it says, so I will be. So right? 
So just this, and so he's like, well, is this how you show your loyalty to your friend? He's talking about David. Is this how your loyalty to, loyalty to Dave? Why didn't you go with David? You like him so much. And Hushai doesn't deny it. He just says, no, but whom the Lord and his people and all his men in Israel chose, I will be his. No, I'm going to be David's. You can put in there just fine. And with him, I will remain. I'm not changing loyalty. I will remain with David. Furthermore, whom should I serve? This is a great, he puts the question at Absalom. Absalom's already answered this question in his head, so he doesn't quite hear this answer, I think. Should I not serve in the presence of his son? Wait, so that means he's serving David, but he's doing it in the presence of David's son. But Absalom just hears, well, you're going to serve me now, right? And as I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. I'm not changing anything. As I serve David, I serve David now. Like his language is so carefully worded that it can be heard in two different ways completely. He's completely, like I love seeing that because you can see why David valued this guy because he's doing this on his feet. While he's being targeted as a traitor with his life on the line, he's able to put this on the table. And there's just wisdom pouring out of this guy. And then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me advice as to what we should do. So Absalom's not really in charge. Ahithophel's thinking now he's pulling the strings. And he is, verse 21. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines who he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father, and then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. For evil people, leadership is about power. right? Who's got control and who can force other people to do things? For evil people, leadership is taken. You take leadership, right? And, and, and that taking of leadership is reliant on your actions as a human. If you're a strong enough personality, you will take the role of leadership. That's evil thinking. God doesn't work that way. God gives leadership and we accept it as a duty. And if we accept leadership as a duty, then it was never us that grabbed it in the first place. It's a lot easier to let go of something you never grabbed. And David just walks away wasn't his to start with. So David walks away because he sees leadership in a godly way, which is that it is a God-given duty to serve other people. It's servant leadership. But Absalom doesn't see it that way. So he's still about the business of taking the throne for himself. And Ahithophel gives him taking the throne advice, which is sinful advice. And it's absolutely repugnant under the law. One, it shows people that Absalom and David are enemies. So he wants all of Israel to see that Absalom and David are not on the same team. What better way to do that than to rape his concubines in front of everyone, like a public display? Like, this is not good Jewish stuff. It defines the kingship as Absalom's, and it clearly defines Absalom's kingship as not one of under the law. Because if he breaks the law publicly and gets away with it, he's telling the whole nation that we're not about God's law anymore. This is a nation of sin overt sin. It's also self-serving because if David came back as a traitor, it puts David in a position where then he has to respond to this evil. So Ahithophel is being really smart here in that if David comes back, he might forgive Absalom, but he won't forgive Ahithophel. So Ahithophel is kind of positioning himself to where David and Absalom can't make amends if, if Absalom does this. So it's kind of self-serving advice. And then four, like, I think there's a piece of this advice that's just plain bitterness. Like Ahithophel hates David. He hates what David's done to these women. And he's right to hate what David has done to these women. So he's going to then do more of it? Like th there's this odd thing there too. 
So David left these 10 women behind in 2 Samuel 15, 16, and they become the target of this bitterness. But I, I'm sure to David it never occurred to him that an Israelite would rape these women. Like it's so beneath anything under the law, so repugnant, that David probably left these women to, keep t to tend the house so the house didn't fall apart. And Absalom can move in and he can have the household servants maintain the house. It was kind of a gift. But to do this is a whole different thing. Um, you're saying, why is this bad? It's a fulfillment of the prophet. Back in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, God said this was going to happen. And he shall lie with your wives in the, sight, in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. God said this was going to happen. So the consequences of sin roll out, and God knew how this was going to play out, and he tells David it's going to happen. So this is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Hushai, notice on this advice. This advice is so bad because he's also showing all these semi-godly Israelites that he's not godly. That's not the way to establish godly kingship. It's horrible advice. So Hushai just stays quiet on this one. Like you notice Hushai doesn't counter this advice. Horrible advice, you go ahead and give it. Because David prayed that the advice of Ahithophel would be confounded, and, and it's happening all by itself in some ways. Then in verse 22, Absalom does it. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice here is to do basically what every other pagan king in that, in that time would do. There's nothing distinctive or godly. There's nothing about serving Yahweh here. No evidence that Absalom consulted the priests or asked God's advice on this. Uh, so he makes a scene of his dominance. He shows everybody what he's doing. He thinks he's taking power out of fear and control. I think he's losing the hearts of the nation. Like, what did we just put in the kingship? It's right after election, you get done electing somebody and you realize how bad they really are. It makes you want to vote the other way next time. Like, okay, we went a little too far on that. So it's a public show of what horrible leadership he has. It's a pretty dark day in Israel. Like, this is, this is the kingship, really? Right? This is only, Absalom's only the third person to call himself king of Israel. So Absalom's not for the Lord. It only took two kings before we're forgetting about Yahweh altogether, if you even count Saul. And the fear doesn't last long. And I think this is an interesting kind of idea. The people are supposed to fear Absalom, but fear doesn't endure very long because when the bomb lands and it misses you, you're not as scared of the bomb next time. This is, there's really cool studies of the German bombing of London in World War II. And they estimated before the war started, they had studies in a 1919 study by Trotter said, if the Germans start to bomb us, we're going to lose 600,000 people in this country. So we have to think about safety. And they were building underground shelters in Britain way before. There was this fear in Britain of the bombs before one was ever dropped. The fear had spread. The Blitzkrieg was taking over entire countries in two or three days across Europe. The Nazis were moving fast and hard, and the fear is part of what helped them take over the country. Nobody fought them. So Britain was getting ready for this, and the fear was spreading. But then they studied afterwards. This is a study by O'Brien in 1955, right after the World War II. Not only did they not have 600,000 people die from the German bombings, they only had 80,000, and that's still tragic. But when the government says half a million people are going to die, and you go about and do your day-to-day -day work, I mean, World War II was not a short war. 
right? A seven years of battle. And a large part of that, London had bombs every other day coming from Germany until they could start to beat them in the air. But what happened is the opposite of what the scientists thought would happen. They thought everybody should hide out in shelters and literally wear masks. <laughs> like the parallels are pretty obvious. But after like a year, people stopped wearing the masks because they realized if a bomb's gonna hit me, I'm gonna die. What good does a mask do? Well, they thought there'd be all these chemical wars that would come through. So they issued everyone in Britain a mask. And at the beginning of the war, 75% of the people would wear their masks or have their masks on hand. By the end of the war, barely 5% of the people by 1940 carried their masks with them. Because at some point, well, point one, I'm not going to live under fear. And psychologically, the opposite also happened. When the Blitz hit the London Home Office, it was reported that there was no evidence of a large proportion of people anywhere. People actually responded to the bombs because when they heard the sirens, they simply went into a shelter. When the sirens went off, they kept walking to their job. Like, and they just went on with life. And what happened throughout the course of the war is the British people, not only did they not lose industrial production, like they thought when these bombs hit, everybody's gonna stop going to work. They stopped going to work for like a day and the end reports of the war is that the, the impact on factory production in, in the UK over World War II was, at, it was the same as an Easter weekend when people don't go to work for a few days. Like, so you're talking about the character of the British people, but before the war, the British people didn't know they had that character. And then after the war, they learned they did have that character. You can go forward with life in the face of fear and, move, and just carry on, carry on. Right? And the British got this reputation of this resilient, resolved people that they're going to fight against evil and that if they got to die, they got to die. But they're going to fight evil no matter what. Good people prove in the times that are harsh that they are resilient against any threat from the enemy. That fear does not win with good people. And if you want to find out who the good people are, put them under persecution. And you'll see who has that backbone and that strength. When evil thinks it's one, like Absalom, they think they can do the worst of atrocities to humanity, and they think that's going to help them get their prominence, but it only solidifies that the good people of the world say, enough, we're done with this. And so David doesn't know it because he's out <laughs> going to the wilderness, but all the people in Jerusalem are starting to realize what they got with Absalom. And suddenly the fear that he thinks he's incur incurring in the folks we're going to find out later those folks are ready to bring David back, only this time they know what they're getting when they get a godly king. A regard for goodness goes up when evil thinks it's winning. And it's exciting if you trust that God's in control of it all. Evil inadvertently wakes up the decent folks of the world. And in doing that, evil defeats itself. They thought they beat Jesus. They just created an opportunity for resurrection in an entirely new covenant. It didn't work. They think Jesus is dead and they lock up the tomb and they get it all protected from the outside. They don't even think there might be a force from the inside that would blow the tomb away. And the tomb gets opened. The advice from Ahithophel is foolish and it's immoral. Leviticus 20, verse 11, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he's dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Like, Absalom just breaks the law, and, and he, that's an odd law to have in the law, by the way, but it seems to be fitting that we get an example of it here in 2 Samuel. It shows Absalom for who he is. Verse 23, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if 
One had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Hithel, both with David and Absalom. That's a really ironic statement to put in here. And, and I love that the Bible, the key words there are as if. When Ahithophel gave advice, he, he was talking like he knew everything. Like he had this pride and he, it was as if God was speaking itself. And you, you've met people like that. You ask them for advice and they give it and they're so full of themselves. I'm one of these people, I think, sometimes. But the humility isn't there. So the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and Absalom, he has a good reputation even if it's in this case being confounded. And bitterness in Ahithophel turns even the wisest of people into fools. And his advice starts to turn foolish. David prayed for this back in 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. And the answer to prayer is happening, even though David doesn't see the answer to prayer happening. He hears about it later. So the advice of Ahithophel keeps coming. 2 Samuel chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Yeah, right. Then I will bring back all the people to you. And when all return, except the man whom you seek and all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ooh, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Actually, it's a pretty good idea. If you want to knock out David... Today is the day to knock out David. Notice that Ahithophel's advice is really about him. Uh, let me, I will, I will, I will strike. Ahithophel's going to be the champion here. Look at how he puts himself in the position of the hero. Who should lead the armies of the kingdom? The king. But Ahithophel's advice is let me lead the armies of the kingdom. What's Ahithophel plotting here exactly? So this plan puts him in the position of the king. Um, so even as a grandpa, Ahithophel, like, they're having babies at age 20. Like, he's in his prime in all likelihood here. He's ready to lead armies. He's a vibrant guy. Hushai stays quiet for the moment. He doesn't insert himself. Um, chasing after David may or may not be a great idea because isn't David in the same spot where he evaded Saul for three years? Is this a really good idea to attack David on his grounds? Really, it's the, it, they don't want him to leave across the Jordan where he can refresh and renew. Here's the other thing. It says weary and weak in verse 2. They think David is weary and weak. But we know from 1615, he's refreshed, right? He's not weary and weak. So the enemy thinks far less of the people of God than they're actually capable of. And then look at this odd little phrase. His goal is to make him afraid. <laughs> like, so they assume that David's going to be afraid of them? Really? David, the warrior who took out armies? That's a pretty big assumption that they're going to be scared of you. Why are they going to be scared of him? Because he's got so many people? Well, Saul had a lot of people too. And David stuck with the Lord. They don't know that David's refreshed himself in the spirit. And in that, they're underestimating their enemy dramatically because God's back with him. I will only strike the king, right? Did you pick up that... <laughs> Ahithophel himself still says the king there. Even Ahithophel still calling David the king. Oops, like shouldn't have let that one slip. That said, this might work. And Hushai might be thinking like, okay, well, maybe that'll work. But, and he keeps his mouth shut. Maybe he's scared to challenge Ahithophel because Ahithophel is presenting himself as though he's God himself. 
and knows all the answers. So maybe he's scared to do it. But here's the thing. Sometimes even when people of God are scared to talk, God makes it really hard. Like you're sitting on a bus and you're the person, God says, you should talk to that person. And they're like four seats away. And you're like, I don't know if I want to get up and move and whatever. And then that person just gets up and comes and sits right across from you. You're like, okay, God, I guess I should talk to this person. That's a true story, by the way. And then Absalom says, now call Hushai the archite also. Same thing, like Hushai is not introducing himself. And, and Absalom just calls him in going, what do you think? I want to know what you think. And I just think this is a God kind of moment, right? And Hushai is like, oh, okay, I'll jump in. And let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. So we, shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Frankly, I'm just going to give credit to Absalom here. I think this is pretty... In the world sense, this is pretty good leadership. You hear one opinion from one advisor, and he wants to hear the opposing advice. So Ahithophel, or Absalom's not rash, and you, you might think he's like, you know, this rash tyrant, but this shows kind of level-headed leadership at some level. He's just listening to the wrong advisor. Um, but the fact that he calls in advice, and he does. Should we do what Ahithophel says? He gave us this game plan. What's your game plan? What do you think? So Hushai says to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given you is not good at this time. Like, let's not beat around the bush. His advice sucks. I love this. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men. They are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field, and your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Do you think your dad is stupid, Absalom? Does anything about what you know about your dad... Do you really think he's going to put himself in a vulnerable position? Notice he doesn't say that David is not in a vulnerable position. He just says, this is the character of your person, right? This is what he thinks he will do. But he points out the fact that David's a fighter, and he's in his element. You really want to go out and go after his bear cubs right now? How do you think that's going to go? Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. Actually, he's not hidden in a pit. He's on mountaintops worshiping God, right? He's not hiding at all. So Hushai, is, surely he's hidden in some pit or some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at first that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. David's going to stay out of the fight and let Israelites kill Israelites. And who's going to get the credit for that? You, Absalom you're going to get blamed for a slaughter and you're not going to end up killing David. So Ahithophel is saying he's going to make this surgical strike and kill David. That won't work. This is really kind of, this is good advice. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all of Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are with our valiant men. When he says the heart of a lion, lion's the... Uh, the kind of the icon or image of the tribe of Judah, of which Absalom is a part of the tribe of Judah. Even the lion-hearted are going to melt in this situation. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for the multitude, that you go to battle in person. He plays to Absalom's pride. Don't let a Hithphil take the lead of your armies. Gather the armies and you take the lead of your own armies. I like that I, we get a bird singing musical background to this this is a good advice from the bird listen up don't underestimate your dad he's with a battle-hardened crew you will lose soldiers if you go out to fight david that's truth he doesn't give him bad advice 
So Hushai gives him a good advice, and this advice just so happens to buy David time. So gathering the armies of Israel means you've got to send out messengers. It may take a week for him to come back. It's buying David time, and the thing David needs right now is time. And human history has shown us that when you have a smaller force against a larger force, you don't have to beat the larger force. This is George Washington. All you have to do is avoid the fight, and the rebellion stays alive and gains strength. You don't have to beat them. You just have to survive. So this is what Hushai's doing. He's buying him time. Uh, if you go after the godly, it's going to backfire. The other thing is this advice to gather troops from all over Israel. Drafts and conscription are never popular policies. Any king or government that has to do this, you're losing the hearts of the people. Fight your own battles. So he's advising a fight. He's not playing against that. But he knows who has the advantage in a fight. And he knows that David needs time more than anything else right now. And he gives him that time. All of this because David was smart enough to send Hushai back to the court. And he didn't just give up on the government that was taking over. He still kept a finger on the pulse of things. And he sent the right person back at the right time. I think this was Holy Spirit inspired because Hushai saves David's life right now at this moment with this advice. Verse 12, so we will come upon him in some place where he might be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground and him and all of the men who are with him there shall not be left so much as one. We're going to kill the whole rebellion. Moreover, if he's withdrawn into a city, then all of Israel shall bring ropes to the city that we will pull it into the river until there's not one small stone found there. If you get this many people, we can literally move cities to get David. Right? So this is like, puffing Absalom up like because you're putting inside the head of this one day old king not even a day old king yet we could do something so epic that it makes the history books and they have history books right all the way through Joshua you could pull a city into the like you could be Absalom the king that destroyed David and he gives them this puffed up idea and plants that seed in his head this legendary move Verse 14, so Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. Pulling cities into the sea sounds pretty cool. The ropes might break, but let's not talk about that. For the Lord has purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. Everybody agrees with Hushai. This is the Lord answering David's prayer. Prayer is greater than smarts and plotting and planning and all that sort of thing. At the end of the day, the pr between the two strategies, prayer is bigger than human wisdom. And prayer in this case gets the, gets the battle won. So God's on his throne. He's still running things. Even when David thinks he's down, God's working to bless him. Here's the thing. God's going to discipline David, but he still loves David. People really struggle with the idea that God could do things that are disciplinary in our lives, but that he still loves us. And the reason he's disciplining David isn't to destroy him, Absalom wants to destroy David. That's not God's goal. God's plan isn't to destroy his chosen servant. But he is letting him get disciplined by Shimei. And then he's confounding Absalom at the very same day. At the same time we go through trials, God's also preparing our victories. Same time, same God. Same fatherly love. Sometimes the discipline's necessary. So the Lord has purposed gets used there in verse 14. The Lord has purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel because that's not part of God's plan. If it's not part of God's plan, don't worry about it. Psalm 138, 7, Though I'm surrounded by troubles, 
You will protect me from the anger of my enemies. You reach out your hand, and the power of your right hand saves me. By the way, Jesus is said to have gone up to be the right hand of God. Literally, David's basically, eternally speaking, he's saying, the power of Jesus will save me. The right hand of God. The Lord gives here this discipline, and he does it the right way, and he also protects David and does it perfectly. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, David had also sent them back to the city last week, thus and so, <laughs> thus and so, this is all the stuff that happened. Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, saying, do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Stop worshiping the Lord, David, and move your people <laughs> right? It's time to scooch. This is all happening the same day. This is the net network that David hoped to set up, and that network starts operating within a day. The sons of Zadok, by the way, are um, doing their job. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz, the sons of Zadok, stayed in, in Rogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go tell the king David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them, a young man saw them, and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to the man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. And then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. Kind of sounds like the Rahab story, doesn't it? They hide in a well. There's a computer game where when you're avoiding the guards, you can jump into a city well and magically cling to the sides of it and the guards will walk right past you but, but we're, we're not here to talk about computer games when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house they said where's Ahimeaz and Jonathan so the woman said to them they've gone over to the water brook and when they went and searched they could not find them and they returned to Jerusalem all of this is God's kind of plan here I think it's really interesting how God's doing this they just lied to the Absalom people in order to save a life is lying wrong? Because we're not supposed to bear false witness. Right? That's a really like, oh, wait, what, what's going on? Part of the things that Jews would teach their children when they went through the Old Testament is that the law is to be applied with common sense. And the law is to be applied in situations where we know God's will. Right? So there's differences and nuances to the law in all these different situations. So A, this makes a great teaching material for rabbis and little Jewish kids trying to figure this out. She hides them under an oppressive regime, and God uses this to guard the lives of his servants. Uh, the Holocaust, and, and when you look at the stories of the Germans hiding out during World War II, very similar stories. And those believers that protected and guarded Jews had really little moral problems with lying to German soldiers. So like, they're not having this con, you know, conundrum of moral ethics. Like You lie through your teeth to save the lives of people. And this is how this works. So they're not bearing false witness. False witness is to lie to hurt someone or to lie for yourself. They're lying to save a life. And in doing that, they're actually protecting life when they do this and guarding it. So the Underground Railroad did this in America. Resistance to the communists did this. The Chinese church does this. When you have oppressive regimes trying to actually kill believers, you hide them. And you don't feel a guilty conscience about protecting life. So, and this is one of the passages you would use to show that to people that were struggling morally with this situation. So Ahimaaz and Jonathan used the names 
Um, they, the names or the use of these names shows that they're adults, they, they were known. So when the guards come, they're asking for them by name. They're asking for people. These aren't young boys traveling. Now it came to pass after they departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to King David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people that were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. This is great. So they just keep moving. Not one of them was left. God's king, God's anointed king, doesn't lose one person. That's really important. When God's king is saving people, he doesn't lose anybody. And Jesus, when he says, I'm coming back for you, he won't miss one of his servants. There's not one of us that'll get left behind. He'll pull everybody that has a heart to serve him. God doesn't lose people, and neither did David. Verse 23, now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled the donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and then he put his household in order and he hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Wait, what? What did Ahithophel just do? Why did Ahithophel kill himself? Did he have hurt feelings? Like what's going on here? Ahithophel, remember, proposed to Absalom that he become the champion of the nation. And when he listens to Hushai's advice, Ahithophel realizes he made the wrong choice. Absalom's not going to promote him. He's not going to be elevated under the rule of Absalom. So this guy in pride is in this spot. And when he follows, Ahithophel's a smart guy. Like that, We've been told that. So when Ahithophel sees that Absalom follows Hushai's advice, Ahithophel's got to be completely frustrated because he knows David's going to win. And when David wins, guess who's on the bad end of that recovery? So Ahithophel, I think, is seeing what's going to happen. He realizes that his betrayal of David was an absolute mistake, and he betrayed the wrong guy on behalf of somebody that doesn't care about him. Sounds a lot like Judas, who also hung himself after he realized he made a bad choice and he betrayed the true king. So this dance with the devil, it's a losing game, right? It, it, the opportunity of win shows up, but then when things play out, you realize that the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. 10. And I think Ahithophel just saw that. Not only am I not going to win, this is going to come back and destroy me. So he kills himself. I don't know. It doesn't say why he killed himself other than that he did, and he gets buried. It's interesting that he puts his house in order, like, that's not just, like, this is a thoughtful decision that he made. Like, it's an odd thing that he would put everything in order before he does this cowardly thing. By the way, suicide is murder. You're taking a life that isn't yours to take. If you belong to God, it's not your decision to make. Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Ahithophel did not build his house on the rock, and when things go bad, it all falls apart. When things go bad for David, it doesn't fall apart. He just worships the Lord. Now I got more time to write songs. And he starts producing psalms like all over the place right now. But when things go bad for Ahithophel, like it's a, it's a pretty bad fall and there's no foundation under him. Another comparison to Jesus. Verse 24. Then David went to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed over the Jordan and he and all the men of Israel with him and Absalom made Amasa the captain of his army instead of Joab. Joab is with David right now. 
This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone out into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zuriah, Joab's mother. <laughs> so Israel and Absalom encamped them in the land of Gilead. Paul, God put these verses in here just for you, right? You can figure all this out and tell me if I got it wrong, but if you unpack all those names and undo it, Amasa is David's nephew. And he's Absalom's cousin, and he's Joab's cousin. But I'm going to let Paul work on that one, but I think that's how that works out. Mahanaim in the Hebrew means two camps. This is a really cool location. This is the spot Jacob split his split everything in two. Thank you for the confirmation. So Mahanaim's the spot where Jacob divided his family into two, and that's why they called this two camps. So David's at this spot where there's two camps of Israel. Israel's been divided into two camps, and once again there's two camps at the same geographic location. Joab has arranged for Absalom to come back and in 1423, but the next mention of Joab is now, and Joab's back with David again. So I think Joab realized, a lot like Peter, that he had betrayed his king, and then he reconciled himself back to the king. Ahithophel betrays his king and commits suicide. So just like Peter and Judas with Jesus, there's two characters that both kind of betray the king, and they take very, very different paths. So Amasa's the king of one army. Joab's going to be leading parts of David's army as we come back. And you got this civil war between these two. But you got to know that between Amasa and Joab, probably some pretty hard feelings right now. Same biological family taking two different sides of a civil war. So chapter 18, verse 2 is where I get that Joab's sticking with David. Unlike Ahithophel, he realizes his mistake and he amends it. And then we get to verse 27. Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash, born from Rabbah, and the people of Amna, Ammon. Ammon, those are not Israelites. These are like other nations are coming to help him. Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalem. They brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, and parched seeds, like some cashews, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd. They brought cheese. Like, this is a feast. This isn't trail food. This is like a meal. For David and his people were with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Remember, Ahithophel told Absalom the people are going to be hungry and weary. He has no idea where David's getting his help from. This is so amazing. Second account, back in chapter 16, verse 1, Ziba brought all that food. Now his friends, his true friends, are showing up out of the woodwork. They got food for him. Genesis 32, Jacob is met by angels at this same spot. David comes here and he's met by these people that are acting like angels. Same spot. Shobi of Ammon. Uh, we got to remember David's fair dealing with the Ammonites, right? He wasn't bloodthirsty, what he was accused of. And because he wasn't bloodthirsty, these people are ready to give David this amazing gift when there's nothing, no gain in it for them at all. They're siding with the losing party from their point of view. Otherwise, these people are nameless, just three people that came out of nowhere and they go back into the nether after this passage. But David had friends even coming from non-Israelite places that were there to help him. What a beautiful thing that God's people get help from all over the place. It's just wonderful. Psalm 23, 
verse 4, David writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over with honey and lentil, right? David's just right, like he's getting like, God, you're so good. The world thinks I'm going through disaster, but I'm going through total revival. And look at this. I'm on the run. Everybody thinks we're dead meat, and you just got lamb meat. We get to have a feast in the face of all this. Absalom thinks he's weak and weary. What he doesn't realize is they are seeing the power of God every moment that they're doing the right thing. It looks like David's quitting his job as king and everything's going to be a disaster and the exact opposite happens. Because David honors God, God blesses him. And this isn't like, oh, if I just do stupid things, God will bless me. It's not that. He's doing what God has called him to do. He's not going to kill other Israelites. Now, David is far, he's far from alone. He's far from weak. He's far from weary. He's bent, but he's not broken. He's crushed, but he's not, he's not ended. He's in panic. Is he scared? Is he angry? Remember, Ithophel said, and we'll make him scared. He's not scared at all. What Absalom's going to run into is a strong nation of Israel, not a weak one. Psalm 3, verse 1, a psalm of David when he fled Absalom, his son. It's actually in the title. Lord, how they've increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah, probably the hill of Gethsemane. I lay down and I slept like Peter in a jail cell. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You punched them in the face. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. That's what he's writing on paper while he's being chased by his own son. And I love the graphic, like, you've broken their teeth. They're saying all these bad things and God's going to break their teeth. David doesn't have to. David still says, your people. He knows these aren't his people. They're God's people. His perspective as a king has come back. The blessing has shifted. A lot like Jesus shifted the blessing of the church. Like God shifted the blessing from Esau to Jacob. David's writing that the blessing is shifting from the human throne of Jerusalem back to God's, the followers of the true and anointed king. There's a new little Israel being birthed out in the wilderness right now. And they get stopped to be refreshed. He's renewing at every stop. He stops to watch his people, chapter 15, verse 17. He stops to worship, 15, verse 32. This renewal of the kingdom keeps going. He stops and they're refreshed, 16, verse 14. And now he's stopping to eat, verse 29. We're going to have a meal prepared in the presence of our enemies. Isn't that how our God works? God's people are never abandoned in their hour of need. In the worst hours of need, we're free to let God defend us. And that's the best part about being in need. God actually can provide. 
He meets the sweet, good, gracious people of God, and he meets them even in the wilderness because they're God's people. He doesn't leave them and he doesn't abandon them and he never forsakes them. Luke 17, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. You're going after the very things that are going to destroy you. Whatever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. That's the truth. And David doesn't need to cling to a kingship. In fact, it's the letting go of the kingship that makes him a real king because he's letting God be the king in his life. If there's a throne to be had, God can put him on it. And if, there's, and if God doesn't want him on the throne, David's okay. He's okay with being a king. He's okay with being on the run. He's lived both ways, and he lets God, he lets go, and he lets God. And he lives his life that way. He knows Jesus, so he knows peace. And if, you, if there's no Jesus, then there's no peace. You've seen the t-shirt. You own the t-shirt. We can do the same thing. When we live for God, God provides for us. And as a people of God, we never need to be fearful that we have to worry about what's happening tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. It has its own worries. But we know God can protect us in all situations. When we scrape and we plan and we plot and we aspire and we cling to things and we fight for positions, the world can take that away in a day. When we let God rule our lives, they can't ever take that away. It's so powerful and so rooted. And the world has nothing to offer us at the other end. God has eternity to offer us. The trade is so worth it. Don't worry. Amen? Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for David. We thank you that he repented, <laughs> that he came back to you, Lord. His story did not end in failure. It ends in victory. Lord, we thank you for David as a man of God that seeks after you like a man with, with, with your own heart. And Lord, we can learn from that. I love, Lord, that, that we don't read legends with untouchable heroes. We read histories, Lord, with very, very human people in them that make human mistakes. We thank you for Hushai. We can't wait to meet him in heaven. What a cool guy. We just thank you for his wisdom, his shrewdness that you blessed him with. We thank you for the stories of the Old Testament in which we can see images of Jesus all over the place. We thank you that when Jesus came, it was a perfect glove-like fit with everything you predicted in the Old Testament. With every story in the Old Testament, we see reflections and mirrors of God. And, and that's the story of resurrection. We thank you for your son, for the gift that he gave on the cross. And Lord, renew our spirits today, even if there's people in this room that are going through trials. Lord, renew our spirits right now and refill us and, 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 and remake us on the inside. Lord, may our hearts not be for this world, but trust in you and put our heart and our soul and our life in your hands and fall back into your arms knowing that you'll never let us fall. In Jesus' name we pray.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.